This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy Podcast. Today, I have a discussion with Dr. Poffy regarding male sexual trauma and the impact it may have on them. We find that a lot of research is pointed and directed at female sexual trauma. I work in addictions and I know that 80% of those in my caseload probably have some resemblance of sexual trauma either in their youth or in their adult life. And even though the males I have in my practice may have a similar rate, they're not necessarily gonna be open about it or discuss it as it impacts their view, their cultural inference of being a man. Today, Dr. Palfi would like to destroy those, <laughs> those barriers, those cognitive distortions in order for us to be better, especially those of us who have experienced such trauma and not knowing subconsciously how it impacts us in all domains of our life. Dr. Mm-hmm. Paul Fee. Absolutely. And Christopher, you got that absolutely right. I, the first thing I want to you know, say to men is, you know, if you have been a victim of sexual trauma, it doesn't mean you're less of a man. It means society failed you somehow. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, research shows that uh, one out of every six boys is sexually assaulted to some extent prior to the age of 16. One in 12 forced to engage in intercourse prior to the age of 16. But we believe those statistics to be very unreliable because of the underreporting. Right. I remember when I was. Um... 12, 13 years old, my sister a couple years behind me. My brother wasn't present at the time. He, I think he was in some kind of school program. We were in a pool and a man approached us and was playing with us. And then he started playing with us. And you know what I'm saying? He was touching us um, inappropriately. And um, we never went back to that pool. We never, we just said, we, we just, my mom would prompt us to go to the pool or whatever. We always say, no, no, no. But for some reason, she or I never ever disclosed what happened to us, to our mother, at least not to my knowledge. I know I never did. And my sister never mentioned it to me. I remember another time in which uh, a, a close family friend sexually perpetrated on one of us and how the family didn't wrap around to support that person as they could not see that person as a perpetrator. And that person was always helpful to the family, always helpful to what we were doing or what we needed. How could he do that to you? You made that up. Absolutely. And you know, Christopher, when you said, when you said you never went back to that pool, my first thought was, I bet he sure did. Right. I bet he went back there every day. And, you know, and what you described about this other offender, you know, in being so helpful in the family, that is exactly what they do. That is their MO. They will try to be the least likely person that anybody would ever believe or suspect to be an offender, right? right? Which is horrifying. And most of us like to think, oh, well, I'd have that instinct or I would know. That is not the case, unfortunately, right? Yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you and your siblings. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. 
in your experience, you've been doing this for a long time, multiple decades. Not, you would never know by looking at you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what have you seen? What are some of the things, what are the most mind-blowing things, if that's even a term that you would want to even address being a clinical doctor, what has really blown your mind and set you back like, whoa, do I really want to do this anymore? Or whoa, I never would have thought that would have happened. Oh, you might not like my answer, but the truth is um, the overwhelming prevalence is the what really blows my mind, right? Like, mm -hmm. again, I'd like to say, you know, so prior to becoming a psychologist, I was a police lady. I worked in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which for y'all down there in the States, it's the Canadian equivalent of the FBI, basically. Mm. And so I was in the behavioral sciences unit and I was doing undercover work and stuff. And we would go online and pose as potential offenders wanting to trade images. And it was overwhelming. Like, I mean, I was just trying to learn what's out there, you know, and you'd, you'd look in one chat room and then You'd be like, okay, it's like, you know, 300 people active in the chat room. And then you'd switch to another chat room. And the people from that chat room that were wanting to chat with you could somehow find you in these other chat rooms. And I mean, that was overwhelming. And, you know, we'd do an arrest or something like, you know, for example, we'd get, you know, a file out of the airport or something like that. And we'd do an arrest and we'd seize their computer and their computer would be filled with address books that we literally could not get to as horrible as that sounds like, I mean, it would be no big deal to do a search warrant and figure out who had the IP address, right? But when there's 300 of them and we got four other active files, like desperately needing our attention, we don't even have time to look at that. And I mean, like here in Canada, we have the National Center for Child Sexual Exploitation and I have colleagues there and, you know, they used to be able to do proactive work to, um, to you know, to, to like a big bus to take down the offenders. They can't do that anymore because the courts and police departments are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we've got a grip on this. It means it's so prevalent. Right. And, and you know, like um, Christopher, like, you know, even just you telling me that this happened in your family, right? Like I hear that all the time. Like I, it, it is because I'm very vocal about the work that I do because, you know, like it was a process of having my eyes opened. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you're a believer or not, but when I became a Christian, I said, God, I got a big mouth. You know that. I'm not even sure you could close it. So can we just agree on you using it for good, right? <laughs> so I try to tell people, try to tell people what I do for work all the time. Last week, I, I you know, I just moved, right? So I moved into a new neighborhood. And, you know, I, again, I'm giving my little spiel, you know, this is the area that I work in. Both the men that I told that to told me, well, one told me with his words that he was a male survivor and the other one started tearing up. So, I mean, you know, it's, right. just, so, it's just so common. And it's so like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure that the statistics are gonna come out to be as equal as they are for girls and women. Right, because they say that sexual perpetrators, I guess up to a certain age, they're victims. It's not, they and their minds may not believe that they're gay or not gay that they just see them as pre, the prepubescence, they just see them as, I guess, sexual beings and they, they they perp on them. And I tell people all the time, that what you do to a child before the age of five or six can impact the rest of their life. It subconsciously becomes a part of them. They may, in some instances, they may become hypersexual. In some instances, they may just be very repressed when it comes to being sexual. In some instances, they'll become more 
involved in relationships that have domestic violence because they don't value themselves or don't know how to value themselves. In other instances, they'll become the perpetrator and do what was done to them, maybe to the same degree, maybe even greater. You know what I'm saying? Actually, Christopher, I think that's one of the myths out there that keeps a lot of victims from coming forward. I mean, um, the research shows that in most populations, the, the amount of victims that go on to reoffend is about 9%. Right. Uh, I know in some of the First Nations Northern communities where they've been decimated by, you know, the residential schools and stuff like that, that, that is a higher prep, that there is a higher, higher prevalence there. But um, for example, there's a book um, by, by Dr. Anna Salter. She was a psychologist in the prisons working with the psychopathic sex offenders. And she, you know, doing during her interviews did a poll or actually I'm not sure if it was her research or she, I don't remember if she just quoted someone else's research, but um, the poll was like, were you victimized? And 70% said that they were. But then when they said, okay, we're gonna do a polygraph and I want you to re-answer those questions without even giving the polygraph, it dropped down to 30%. Mm. So these offenders are lying about that a lot of the time to get empathy from the judge at sentencing time, right? Yeah, I could see that. No, definitely. I could definitely see that. And that's really sad that they would do that. That's really sad that they would do that. Yeah. But it is also one of the reasons that boys and men stay quiet, right? Because there's this myth out there that, oh, you're going to become a pedophile if somebody offended against you. And and yeah, you, you mentioned like just questioning, you know, well, why, they, why me? Why was I a victim? Do I have something written on my forehead, you know? And you don't come to know your own worth and value. And yeah, like their goal is to leave victims confused. I used to work at a um, agency. I think they called it a level three at the time, um, New Hope, in which um, children that perpetrated or were perpetrated against who had mental health issues complicated by such um, actions. It was a treatment center, long-term treatment center. And You've seen that in some cases, they would continue to reoffend, even though they were supposed to be appropriately supervised in this treatment setting. What really blew my mind and caused me to walk away from there was that the providers sometimes would become perpetrators with that within that same population. I remember one female who was um, indicated having sex with one of the um, clients at that particular treatment center and to me that just perpetuates more sexual trauma more sexual you know deviance or pain in that particular situation yeah he bragged to his friends da 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 he bagged such and such but internally what is that doing to him what is that what what are you programming him to be and you know what, I, I don't know if working, you know, working there would make him do that. But I think like offenders seek out opportunities to work in places like that because they know they'll have access to vulnerable children. And also because they know that they'll have access to children who also have a history of lying, right? So if a child has a history of lying, they're a perfect target because no one's gonna believe them. Very sad, very sad. You know, I mean, Christopher, I'm, I mean, this is part of my awakening, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Before I became a police officer, I worked in a correctional facility. And I remember, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a small town Saskatchewan girl. Like, I'm about as blue collar and redneck as they used to come, you know? I mean, I was pretty naive, pretty sheltered, you know? I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not saying I'm blue collar redneck now, but no offense against them. I'm just trying to paint a picture that I grew up in a very sheltered in community, right? And, um, you know, I just, I remember getting to this prison and, and like, 
I don't get it. Like, I seriously don't get it. Why are there so many men here compared to women? Like, didn't even make sense to me. And that question was never answered, right? Until I heard, um, his name is Sheldon Kennedy, a former pro hockey player, one of the first men to ever come forward. And when I heard his story and why he didn't talk about it, it was like, oh my gosh, this is why our prisons are so filled with men. Like he talked about, you know, he couldn't disclose his abuse because, you know, I mean, if he had disclosed it, it would have meant the end of his potential hockey career. Right. Like his his perpetrator was getting him to the big leagues, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and his family had he'd grown up in poverty. His career was literally lifting his family out of poverty. I mean, who wants to end that, right? Like, right. He had right. very valid reasons for not disclosing, but yet his coping mechanism was cocaine and alcohol, right? And well, who could blame him at 16? Like his world just got turned upside down in every way possible, right? And ironically at the time he talked about living this double life and um at the time i was sitting there listening to him i was sitting next to a, 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 my boss whom i previously met on a dating site and refused to date and you can just imagine the dynamics there and that was literally the least of my problems at work i was being bullied mm -hmm. and i was in major crimes and i was like i didn't feel like i could stop this so like i would go home and bawl my eyes out all the time and when he talked about living this double life, I was like, oh my gosh, I get that little piece. I get mm -hmm. that little piece, like, you know, of not being able to come forward. And so that's sort of what ignited my passion to work in this area. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Passion drives us in some ways, in some ways that what we found here in North Carolina, especially in some of my caseloads, is that sometimes the people that advocate, the people that you know, kind of had what you alluded to before, you know what I'm saying? Because of the access, you know, I've seen police officers who were on spe special caseloads to um, address sexual abuse, who ended up on their own personal computers having pornography that were, def def you know, that were caught, you know, was penalized or kicked off the force, arrested, because they were doing the same things that they were catching other people for. Some people get into these services we find it's in mental health some people with significant mental health issues of their own go through school get their licensures and i guess sometimes i guess to address their own mental health issues or feel like because it happened to me i probably could be better to serve someone like me end up doing more harm than good because their own traumas their own issues haven't been appropriately resolved or they weren't stopped at the at the um the gates before entering the field to do such damage Absolutely, 100%. And like, you know, just the, the gross re-victimization. And Christopher, nobody could blame you for not wanting to work with a bunch of colleagues like that. Like, that's horrific. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. Like, the, what chance does a victim have when they go to a facility like that? And then they, and I hear it's pop common in foster parenting too. And in fact, I do a lot of sort of marketing on, on, on LinkedIn and I reached out to the foster parent population and the responses I got was, you know, that this is just being re-perpetrated in the foster homes. And I was like, yeah, that's sad. Yeah. But, but, you know, Christopher, like what you and I are doing here, just talking and, and bringing you know, giving people permission to talk about this and creating the awareness that society needs. This is how we make change. Right. I remember when I was in the um, United States Navy, 1990s, early 1990s, mid 1990s, I was on a submarine service. And so, you know, submarines only have males. And um, I was perpetrated upon when I was uh, I'm a seaman. And um, 
when it was time for us to deploy again, I said I wasn't gonna deploy again. So I went AWOL. And then when I came, but I but when I came back right before the point in which it would have got me federally in trouble, like the 29th day mark versus the 30th mark, 30th day mark, you know, I was ordered to treatment, I was penalized, I was imprisoned, but I was ordered to treatment. And the chief op, the chief petty officer that was working with me, he didn't believe my story. He downplayed my story and he didn't accept my answers. He just thought I was a drug addicted bum who wanted to get out of the military, not understanding that, you know, the reason I went AWOL is because they weren't going to do that to me again. You know, what they used to have is like so many beds in the bunker of the submarine. And so they were hot swapped. So when there's one ship gets up, the other ship goes down. But that's when a lot of people were perpetrating and sexually act out on each other. And um, I say that to say this, that I wasn't going to allow that to happen to me anymore. I was going to let that happen again. And that's why I said I just walked away. Not saying I wanted to walk away from that military experience, but that particular military experience, as I saw no justification in who's to say I went to a different command or a different submarine that it wouldn't happen again. Absolutely. They discharged me honorably, but with a, um, a mental health disorder and um, no, no ability to re-entry and not really addressing my issues. The, the transition plan wasn't adequate and I was left out to dry. So, for many years, I didn't have any connections to, you know, getting help or anything like that. Luckily, a friend reached out, saw what was happening, saw it was decompensating due to a case I was working with and reconnected me in order for me to get the help. Retrieved my medical records from the past in order to um, start working on my case currently. And there's no mention of anything that I mentioned regarding that in my records. Yeah. Christopher, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, and I mean, A, I believe you. and. Um, you know, uh, when you said that you reported it and they didn't believe you, I'm sure he believed you. He just didn't want to do anything about it. He might even have been part of it, right? Like these guys work together. Like, that's exactly like, I don't know if you've had a chance to read my book or not, but that's exactly like, you know, the Catholic school system, right? Like they set each other up. They, they trade victims. They, they give each other this information. Like, you know, teacher offends in one school and it gets transferred to another school where, oh, here, you know, leave this kid alone or go find this kid or whatever, you know, like it is like, it's a pedophile ring, right? Like they are active, they are connected. Like that was my point of the story too, with, you know, like the offenders going from one chat room to the other, these guys, especially with the internet, these guys are connected. They support each other. You know, they, they're in every high level of organization. I said, if I ever get murdered, it's going to be by a pedophile, you know, who wants to shut me up, right? right. Because I've seen this, right? And I, I'm like, people, this is happening, you know? Yeah, I don't doubt one bit he tried to silence you. And la let's label you as the bad, let's label you as crazy and drug addicted instead of the pedophile as a pedophile, right? Or the sex offender as a sex offender. I guess, sorry, if you're an adult, he's not a pedophile. But he's... <laughs> He's abusing his position of authority and he's, you know, I mean, you're a captive audience there in the submarine, like, and, and, you know, what's your, what's your option, right? You either go AWOL and discharge or, or, or go back and get raped, right? Like, that's not an option. There's no, there's no healthy option there, right? right. I heard, I hear this with my soldiers coming back from Afghanistan too. Mm -hmm. They're telling me that in Afghan, in Afghanistan, that the Afghan National Army has a problem with like offending against their own, but the, the smaller ones, they treat them as if they're women. They have a saying, they say, um, 
uh, like women are for babies, boys are for pleasure, something like that. It's terrible. But um, these these soldiers are coming to the Canadian and American soldiers saying, please, this is what they're doing to us. You have to let me come home with you. You have to take me with you. And the Canadian soldiers are ordered not to get involved. Right. And so these men, the, the potential victims are the ones that have been victimized. They're literally committing suicide in front of our guys. Mm. So these guys come home with feeling like they got this blood on their hands because they they didn't help. But they're like they're ordered not to help. It's 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 everywhere. It's tra it's so traumatizing. Right. Right. Mm. I've seen some footage about that particular incident, those particular incidents that happened over there. I think they call them girly boys or something like that. Um, no, that's Thailand. That's Thailand and the Philippines too, or the lady oh, boys. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, those are typically, you know, children that have been, uh, you know, grown up in the industry, um, and you know, they make a living through pretending to be women, basically, right? But a lot of them, like, it's not like they're adult men that go choose to do this. They they start as children, right? Right. Like I was saying earlier in my practice, men very rarely speak on any sexual abuse that might have happened to them, but you might see it in a former assessment or you might have seen it because of the person who referred them to services. They might have mentioned it in shorthand or something or hinted at it, but didn't go into any details with it. Those that come out of the prison system may avoid the topic altogether. You know what I'm saying? Almost like that chapter of their life didn't exist, but you know that they were perpetrated on or do you know based on other um, information you received in their pre previous assessment or in a referral source that they were perpetrated on. And you know it impacts their lives in such way. Many, mm -hmm. at least on my case, so you know, I'm an addiction specialist, mm -hmm. numb themselves with heroin and crack cocaine, you know what I'm saying? I have a client who sexually not acts out, but is over-sexualized because he doesn't want to be labeled a homosexual or a bisexual because of that, what happened to him when he was in prison for all those years, putting himself at grave danger, you know what I'm saying, regarding HIV or a, a debilitating STI. But still, you know, dealing with those situations in which he does experience bisexual relationships as well, but hints at it discusses what's going on in such a way, but never ever admitting to it, admitting to it or owning it. But you see the pain through the drug use, the continued drug use. You see the pain through the aggressive acting out and interactions with others because he wants to have the bravado, the macho, because he doesn't want to be labeled in that way. Least of all by himself, right? right. Least of all by himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, I mean, this is why we have laws about age of consent and people in positions of authority not, not being allowed to engage in sexual acts with children because they are not old enough to understand what they're doing. And of course, their bodies respond the way God intended their bodies to respond. There's, you know, you know, a natural response to being touched. Doesn't matter what's touching you, you can get stimulated, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you know, they're so confused. They think that because they got stimulated that they were willing or you know, of course, many of any perpetrators will establish friendships with their victims well and mm -hmm. and wait a very long time before they offend. So there's this, you know, this is what was portrayed in the Michael Jackson documentaries, right? A long period of courting friendship before anything ever happened to the point where these boys are absolutely infatuated with him before anything happens. And then they think it's like, well, we just fell in love. No, you were targeted. You were targeted. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Christopher, I just want to say like you are, you're such a groundbreaker to be just talking about this, right? Like, obviously it's difficult to even talk about this, right? But, you know, and you work in this area supporting other, you said mostly women, but you know, also a few men that you do support. And, you know, I mean, if you do decide to air this video or even this part of the video, can you imagine how many people might be inspired to say, hey, you know, if he can come forward, I can come forward, right? I live my life by that standard. I am because we are, that I am in many ways an open book, you know what I'm saying? That's why I do podcasts, that's why I do write the books I write, that's why I do the social media posts that I post because I'm a, one, I'm a therapist getting therapy. I believe that everybody can benefit from therapy. I believe anybody doesn't, no one has to define themselves by their past. I have a very tumultuous past, but today I'm here as a helping person. I'm here as a person that's giving to the community, benefiting the community. Um, I think a lot of people, they use their past for their present. I was abused as a child, so I'm not worth anything. This is my life. My mom was a drug addict. I started using drugs at 12, 13 years old. This is my life. This is who I am. And just letting them know that I walked in your shoes, some of your mm -hmm. shoes, many times, that you don't mm -hmm. have to define yourself by what you experience. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Even if there's a barrier because of something in the past, there's ways to navigate your life, to have a life the way you want it or similar to the way you want it, just by thinking differently, just by moving differently. Absolutely, and that's such a powerful message, Christopher, coming from you who's walked that walk, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that, but I can give the female perspective and say, you know, you're not less of a man because of what happened to you, just right. like what you said, right, you know? Right. Yeah. In fact, I think like, you know, since I, like I used to be a police lady and admittedly I had some pretty biased opinions of my own, right? Mm -hmm. But as I become a therapist and I work with men all the time, either I work with either first responders or male survivors, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, as I see how many of them struggle to truly allow themselves to experience any sort of like deep, sad emotion, how much courage it takes to do that and how much courage it takes to tell your truth, right? So right. like, it, the courage that you're displaying is what what caused me to redefine my sense of masculinity and what like what what you know like a strong healthy man looks like right like what I'm looking at right now like I know you you're still doing your own work and stuff right but like you know what you're doing is my definition of strong and health strong and courageous and healthy and work in pro we're all works in progress you know I mean I I have done so much of my own healing just from you know, like uh, part of like my book, Men Too, which is my poster in the background, right? Like, I mean, I I have some sexual trauma in my background in that, you know, I grew up reading my dad's pornography and my parents fought continually. I had very distorted ideas about sex. And, you know, I let my high school boyfriends do things to me that I probably wasn't like, didn't even know what I, you know what I mean? Um, but, um, oh, where was I going with that? Uh, no, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking at the past can do that sometimes. <laughs> Speaking of PTSD, right? <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, wow. Where are we going with that? Well, yeah, sorry. Speaking Not of triggers, we know we can yeah. see sometimes how women are triggered by their sexual abuse. They may not see a male um, doctor. They may not see a male therapist. What ways do you see males that's been sexually abused what kind of things are they avoiding of or what kind of triggers, things have you seen that triggered them? 
honestly, it is the effects of childhood sexual abuse are so prevalent across a lifetime, right? Like, I mean, it's, it, you know, for one thing, it depends on the child's, like the effects that I'm seeing depends on their pre-supports, their pre-abuse pre supports, pre-abuse um, ability to self-regulate, their pre-abuse perception of themselves, their pre-abuse, yeah, just, you know, like their developmental stage, right? So a child that is sexually offended against very early in life may not learn even how to self-regulate, right? So if a child has learned how to self-regulate before their abuse, they're gonna be way better off. Because, you know, I mean, in my book, I've, I, I told the stories of two boys who were sexually abused, like that's their earliest memories. So they did not learn how to self-regulate. So, um, I mean, that affects them all the way through school, right? Like dissociating in school, not sleeping at night because they're being offended on against at home or nightmares about being offended against. Now they're falling asleep in class because it's the only safe place to sleep, right? And, you know, because they're so tired. So, you know, yeah. And I mean, if they don't learn how to self-regulate, of course they're going to turn to drugs and alcohol because it helps them replicate that feeling that they were never able to develop for themselves, right? right. And now, you know, they're failing in class. We're looking at so low self-esteem what do they do with their lives right what hope do they have to become productive members of society if they've not graduated from high school right like right. it's just they say if a child doesn't learn to read by grade three good luck right like you know and so it's you know there's just so many you know and then i mean so the best one side of the spectrum is that you know if a child doesn't learn to self-regulate and they're offended against it can have catastrophic effects on them these are the ones that i'm convinced our prisons are filled with but then on the flip side if a child has learned to self-regulate and just chooses okay i'm just gonna try to push that up that aside they may become um you know kind of closet alcoholics or, or other substance users they may throw themselves into hypermasculine sports right like be super aggressive in weightlifting or rock climbing or motorcycle racing those kinds of things that make them feel like a man make them feel alive when they're all numb and dead inside right. or they become workaholics right like they become the CEOs of the big companies because they just need to keep busy to distract their brains right, right. Yeah. so yeah there's a lot of long-term consequences your book mm -hmm. give us some insight into what prompted you to write it and you know what's the What's it about? So my book is a psychoeducational book. Um, it's designed to educate the public. It's designed to create awareness and it's designed to support male survivors. So, you know, oh, that's where I was, that's, I remember now why I started to tell you about my dysfunctional background. So, I mean, a lot of the things that I was hoping it would come back, <laughs> a lot of the things I was struggling with in my own youth, like dysregulation and, um, you know, um, insecure attachment in relationships, self-doubt, not recognizing my own self-worth and stuff like that. Like, I can't like, you know, my own healing journey, um, I kept that sort of in the back of my mind. And also kind of like uh, when, I, when I conducted my research, I was looking for the similar types of struggles that boys and men would have had, right? And so like one person that just recently read my book, he said, you put words to what I didn't previously understand. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly my goal for male survivors. I want to help you make sense. I want to help bust those myths. I want to give you research statistics so you can stop worrying that, you know, that like I have clients that have, or some of my participants even and clients and stuff that like, 
you know, what are the, you know, if I have children, am I going to be safe around them? Yeah, you will. Right. Like if you're even thinking that way, you're going to be fine. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like offenders don't worry about that kind of stuff. They look forward to that. Right. right. So yeah. So busting those myths. So why did I get involved and why this? Um, well, I, as I mentioned, I was going through bullying and stuff like that. And my brain literally shut down. My, my doctor took me off work. I was having severe memory loss issues, which as you saw a minute ago, still come up a little bit. But, um, you know, I mean, I felt like I was doing really important work in the, in the behavioral sciences unit. And I was, I was actually the file coordinator for the RCM, for Canada's second sex tourism file, which was the RCMP's first sex tourism file. So, um, I, you know, I was like, and that was sort of the height of my bullying, you know? So I was like, my doctor took me off work then. And I was like, like, what do you do with your life after you've done that kind of work? Right. And I was. I just like no offense to waitresses, but I just couldn't go back to waitressing. I was like, you know, it's like getting married and saying we can only hold hands. You know? <laughs> so it was just like, you know, that's literally what brought me to my knees. I was like, God, I need something to be, you know, I need something meaningful to do, you know. And 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 he and he reminded me of how brokenhearted I was when I heard Sheldon Kennedy's story, and I was like, oh, I could make a difference. Like, and it was like this little light went off inside. Like, I could legit make a difference. Like, I know, like. And, and there was also like a, a piece of conviction too, because, you know, like I had been, I was considered the expert in the field as far as policing. Like they were training me to be a subject matter expert. And, and I was working in the behavioral sciences unit and we had started up the ICE unit in Canada. You know, like we were, we were the top of the food chain as far, you know, in Canada anyways, as far as knowledge base. And I didn't know crap about this. Like I didn't know anything about male victims. Right. right. And, and, and my boss, who was a man, like we had a file and we had like, I can't remember 65 victims or something and you know he said to me don't worry about the boys and I didn't even question that like I didn't question I, I mean I barely questioned it right mm -hmm. and so there was this piece of conviction too like the, after you know after I kind of reflected and started to hear you know you know just like that well maybe we should have worried about the boys and and maybe I need to know more about this and if I'm the expert and I need to know more about this maybe everybody else does too right so yeah so that's sort of why I got involved oh man This was a deep story. This is a deep, deep discussion. Mm. Brought back some memories, some painful memories for me. I definitely need to call my psychiatrist and therapist after this one. <laughs> but I'm glad they're in place so I can call upon them. A lot of people don't or are not connected to a therapist or a psychiatrist that have these same pressing mm. issues. They may, they may feel that they're adequately addressing them or that they're adequately resolved them. But had they really, you know, my mom was sexually abused when she was younger and she didn't ever mention it, never mentioned it to her husband. Of course, she never told her children, but it impacted her for years and years. You know what I'm saying? The pain that was inside of her until she finally addressed it. I think it was so buried that she didn't even recognize it or even remembered it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? But it played out in her interactions with others. It played out in her relationships. It played out, you know what I'm saying, with how she treated her male children. Mm -hmm. um, and as a child, you know what I'm saying, feeling a certain way, being treated that way until you understand later in life when you become a therapist yourself and understand the impact of sexual trauma, then it all makes sense and you must forgive. Mm. Well, forgiveness is a hard concept, right? You know. Um, forgiveness is something that's meant for you, like Christopher, like it, it, forgiveness, forgiveness, like 
simply means that I'm letting God deal with this, right? Like I don't have to walk around every day of my life um, per trying to plan my revenge because there's no revenge that you could ever do that would ever be good enough, right? So, mm -hmm. and that's something that I do talk about in my book is that, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of people walk away from their faith because for example they say like how could god let this happen and if i if i start to trust in god or try to allow god to help heal me he's gonna make me forgive my offender and i don't want to do that right mm -hmm. it's forgiveness is from a christian perspective forgiveness is supposed is a gift you give yourself right like forgiveness is so that you can say you know what god you deal with this guy you know exactly what happened you saw everything and, and you, I, you know, I, I give them up into your hands and whether or not there's revenge in this lifetime or the next, right? That's, that's right. Like, like to me, that's, that's why we have a hell, right? Like God might give someone an entire lifetime to make amends or repent, but you know, at the end of the, at the end of it, they don't, right? Yeah. That's anyways, you know, so that's like, that's sort of my take on forgiveness. So, but yeah, Christopher, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's deep, and I'm sorry that this is triggering to you, but... Uh, oh, no, no. I go to therapy. I'm good. <laughs> awesome. And you, Christopher, have nothing to be ashamed about. Even if this is hard for you to talk about, you are a true hero doing this, honestly, right? Like... Yeah. Yeah. I feel so. I feel like that's the case. So people yeah. can get your book, and like you said, it was, it's very helpful regarding, you know, learning about it, learning, understanding people's perspectives that's been impacted by it, getting skills in order to address it. You also have a, a, a group online? Um, I have a Facebook page and I have, um, yeah, I have, a, I'm just starting up a YouTube channel. So I'm hoping you'll let me use this video for my YouTube channel too, which is, you know, men telling their stories, men um, just, uh, you know, just we're, it's about creating awareness, right? It's not meant to be exploitive or anything like that. It's like, please people open your freaking eyes. You need to hear stories. Okay, here they are, you know, like, right? Right. you know but which is which is all free to the general public obviously i don't charge anything for that right. um i'm just getting started but yeah my book my book is meant to support to educate support male survivors to educate frontline workers uh you know like just to give you just to sort of bring that point home like when i did my my phd at the university of alberta mm -hmm. and one of my professors just said hey you want to be a guest speaker in my master's program and i was like yeah i'll get some experience public speaking why not right so i went in there and i gave a lecture and it was like silent most quiet lecture ever right <laughs> but at the end of it my the soup the professor said to me holy cow kelly you have made me rethink how i work with my clients he said i think this is why i'm so stuck with some of my men he's like I've never even thought to ask about this. Mm. Indeed. I but think the know, more, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you. The more exposure we have to information like this, your movement. Thank you for coming on the show today, by the way. And thank you for writing this book and having this, this group and doing this YouTube channel because I just don't believe there's enough support or there's mm -hmm. not enough information to give support in the world or we're just not aware of it i remember when i was doing research not for this particular recording but just in general when i was in school there wasn't a lot of information a lot of research a lot of journal reviewed peer supported research regarding this issue but i could find billions upon billions of pages for the female population 
I could find all kinds of evidence to support any theory I wanted to support regarding sexual trauma in females, but very little, almost to none, for males. Yeah. Um, I was prompted to do the research on my own, but I was saying I, my master's was enough of a student that I'm not going for my doctorate. <laughs> well, and you know what, Christopher, to be honest, I was on medical leave from the RCMP because of my PTSD, <laughs> and I was still getting so triggered working, like not so triggered, but a few times I got, you know, tunnel vision when I'm working, kind of maybe even what happened to you today, you get a little bit triggered when you're talking about things. For mm -hmm. me, my thing is, for my, for me, my thing is bullying and unfairness, right? Because that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, naive little Saskatchewan girl, I thought, you know, that they really did want me to whistleblow. Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Anyways, um, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I was, I, I wasn't, and I'm still not fully healed. Like it's always going to be a journey, but that's why I did my PhD was because I wanted to feel like as much of an expert in this field or, or as competent at least as I did in my last career before I embarked on this. Right. And I was on medical leave from the RCMP so and, and I sued them so they paid for it, right? So mm. I treated it as my next job and I just like, I mean, I had terrible feelings of guilt about using government money to do this, but I just said, you know what? I'm 100% committed to making a difference. So let's just focus on that. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. All right, all right. Well, thank you for joining us today in this discussion. It's very needed, very important yeah. subject. I definitely will, I'm in your show notes. So we definitely have information so they can learn more about your movement, get your book, obtain information regarding your Facebook group. And hopefully by then you'll at least have your channel running, even if you don't have content yet, for your YouTube, YouTube channel so they can subscribe to that as well. It is, it is, I have one video there actually, ironically, it's of another addictions counselor who told me his story. So okay. if I have your permission, I'll put this one on there yes, too. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's do a sloppy segue. How do you take care of yourself? Oh, oh, that, I, you might even notice my eyes going up and to the left. It's a beautiful sunny day outside mm -hmm. and I am on my way to a beautiful park in my community. I'm going to go for a run right now. So mm -hmm. I, I do a lot of, uh, my self-regulation comes from my exercise. Yes. Uh, and you know, like if I get triggered, I call my therapist too. Uh, it's one perk of being a therapist is that I have a lot of friends who are therapists. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, you know, Christopher, to be honest with you, I really focus on the process when I'm working with a client, right? Like, I know that pain is in there and it gives me such joy if clients will trust me enough to allow that pain out. So I really focus on like, if that pain gets to come out, it doesn't have to stay inside. And although I know that they're hurting right in front of me right now, mm -hmm. they're gonna go away feeling better and that's really nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the attitude that I keep. Yes, in America, we find that Canada has all the nice things. <laughs> like? <laughs> like you. <laughs> I feel the same way about Americans. And if you had a treatment facility for me down there in like Colorado or something, I would be like, dude, my stuff's in the car already. Where, well, where there's am one I thing about America. We have one of the strongest <laughs> propaganda machines. <laughs> okay. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Palfi. You've been a wonderful, wonderful guest. Thank you for giving me the time to speak with you and discuss with you this issue today. Any final words? Thank you, Christopher. It's been an honor and blessings to you and your popu your client population in healing. Thank you. All right, we're going to cut it right there, but we're not going to really cut it because there might be something we say after the fact that I could use. <laughs> How are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs>
I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. I'm wow. Great. I did not know this is where this one was going to go. Hey. Hey. Yeah, I like when you say hey. That reminds me of Canada. <laughs> My favorite superhero. He's from Canada. His name is Wolverine. <laughs> okay. That's Christopher, this is something that you've already talked about publicly or? No. Like, First time. Because no. I never, um, I have, I'm, I mean, I'm older. I'm 47. Um, so I had a very, very full life with some trauma, a lot of good things, some trauma. And I find that talking, you know, some of these things come out in therapy sometimes. I mean, it come out at therapy. Of course I talked about it in therapy, never publicly, never on a public realm. But it's the opposite because, you know, there's about to have, not have been a, a prompting point for it to come out. I don't, um, I don't have shows where I do monologues and I'm talking about me. My monologue shows are just about a perspective, a, a quote, me expanding giving you a different worldview. I don't think I'm ever gonna move to a show where I'm just talking for like a extended period of time about what's going on with me because I just don't know how interesting that would be. But if I have a guest who brings up a perspective that I can relate to and I have a story that can kind of flow with it, I'd be more than happy to share that story. I find that people heal from stories, people learn from stories. And if they see somebody that looks like them or sounds like them or comes from a different, from a, a similar background, that could be life changing that they can change and they could be better too. But then not only that, that it's safe to do so. Like let's say a male believe like how many of our cl clients believe that if he talks about being sexually abused, he's less than, he's, he's a punk, he's a homosexual, et cetera, et cetera. And he truly believes that he really has that cognitive distortions okay. but with somebody that he admires somebody that he looks up to in some ways mm -hmm. that he feels as a man because he sees him with his children at the park or something whatever if he hears that story he knows well damn if he admitted to his own and he's doing this well maybe maybe owning my own stuff or getting help for my own stuff will make me better or feel better yeah yeah and and you know christopher you, you got to watch that other video of the other fellow that I interviewed. One of the things that he said was so powerful. He said, um, if I can cry for other people, I can cry for myself, right? So powerful. And you know, I mean, that's, yeah, like, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's part of, part of my healing journey too, is like, when I work with my clients and I tell them, no, that's not true about you. You're lovely and you're beautiful and stuff. I have to tell that to myself too, right? You know, like, I mean, I have, I do think that's part of why I did my PhD because I wanted to feel as good as everybody else. Right. So now I'm able to say, no, I'm equal to everybody else. Cause even mm -hmm. though I was little before I did my PhD and I, and you know, I mean, honestly, I want to say, I think my true healing a lot came from getting in touch with my faith because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just, I just I had to learn to say to myself, like, God doesn't make junk. Right. Like, you're not junk. Right. You know? Right. And I, I just had to chew. Okay. Like if, like I heard in a sermon, like if you, like criticize yourself you're criticizing his work right and and so for me <laughs> yeah so i know, I know. that even with myself you know that uh, myself and people i know you know we came from a catholic background and um you know all the traumas that's happening with that with that particular um religion or that particular sect oh man <laughs> you gotta show this part <laughs> powerful christopher i lost my train of thought <laughs> but you know when you hear more about it when you express more about it when you understand that this even though it's not a norm across the board 
that it does happen to people and people can grow from it, can escape from it, can get help with it, can admit to it, can be better because of it. Suppression. Be free. Right, be free from it. You know what I'm saying? Like, who, who to say you even have to write about it? Just talk about it. Write about it. It don't even have to be something that you publish. I, I find journaling, writing is the greatest tool because... I'm getting it out. I may not want to verbally say it. It may hurt me or pain me to verbally say it, but to write it, you know, mull over it. I remember I get. I remember I used to give tools to clients. They'll write something to their perpetrator or whatever. And then I would do a burn ceremony. We'll go in the back, the backyard or the backyard of the agency, and I have a little altar thing, and they'll burn it. You know what I'm saying? F that person. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So therapeutic, Christopher. <laughs> I'm sure you have such a. You know, you have such a, a presence for your clients and uh, yeah, no, it sounds like you're doing great work. Yes, ma'am. You too. I look forward to hearing more about you and following your movement. I'm going to um, buy your book today. Um, I'm going to add it in my collection. I wish I could get it directly from you so you could sign it, but you know, we'll work with it. <laughs> That's possible. You okay, just okay. You just send me your address and I'll make that happen. There you go. And send me your I got, your. I don't your cash app or your PayPal or whatever, and I'll make the I'll situate you. <laughs> There's your copy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, please send me your cash app or your PayPal or your Venmo or whatever you use in Canada, and we're gonna make that work, okay? Okay. You take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>